Hello and welcome to Ask a Physical Therapist on Carbondale's KDNK. My name is Dr. Tannis Kitchener. I'm a physical therapist and today we are inviting Dr. Richard Burt, MD, back on the show to discuss his book, Everyday Miracles, Curing Multiple Sclerosis, Scleroderma, and Autoimmune Diseases by Hematopoietic Stem Cell Transplant. We have recorded a part one, just getting into the different types of MS. So if you've missed part one, please feel free to refer to the podcast on ADNK.org. Welcome back, Dr. Burt. Thank you. So my goal would be that the listeners get an idea of how they can identify who might be appropriate for hematopoietic stem cell transplant, who they need to speak with about identifying whether they're appropriate or not, And from that point, where do they find care and what to expect with that type of treatment or what to consider when they're wrestling inevitably between different treatment options and potentially seeing some some downsides or just getting the feel that the medical community hasn't accepted this yet can be quite scary. So being armed with some information through our discussion, I think will be helpful. The goal of this book is to educate patients, um, but... All those points you brought up are excellent, and the last chapter deals with why this hasn't taken off. And one of the reasons it hasn't is that um, it's the way medicine is structured. Obviously, everyone's the best for their patient, but how it's gotten structured has become this own machine. And autoimmune diseases are homeless. For instance, multiple sclerosis is a part of neurology Crohn's, of gastroenterology, scleroderma, of rheumatology, and my original training was in transplant in hematology and cancer. I gave all that up. I gave up the field of hematology and cancer because I had this idea and worked in animal models and started treating patients to develop this field. And what I found is that specialists in these other areas, such as neurologists who take care of MS, do not know and do not understand hematopoietic stem cell transplant. That's something they never see, never interact with. Uh, and the understanding of the rationale for doing it isn't even there. It's not that the hematopoietic stem cell causes neuro or oligodendrocyte regeneration. No, it's an immune reset, and the, the body repairs itself. The, the central nervous system is able to repair itself while it's still in the relapsing phase before it becomes secondary progressive once you have that immune reset. So the neurologists don't understand this therapy, and so they're obviously hesitant to refer to it or to refer the right subset of patients their preference would be to wait till they've tried everything and they're late secondary progressive, which nothing works, and then send them. But stem cell transplant is not a neuroregenerative therapy. It's an immune reset therapy. It is an immune therapy. So you have to get it while still an immune-mediated disease. You have to treat earlier. And that's not understood. And the reason for that is it goes back to the history of medicine. You know, it used to be that we could understand different organs because of autopsy or you could see it. So the skin, that became dermatology. At autopsy, you could see the heart. That was well studied. The circular system was studied. So that became cardiology. The kidneys at autopsy, that became renal. But nobody could see or understand these microscopic cells, these immune cells, until microscopes came about. And then after that, there developed immunology departments that began to study the basic science of these immune cells. But the clinical divisions that treat these different autoimmune diseases were already well established. And all these different autoimmune diseases were given into all 
already many different departments with their own little fiefdoms. There is no National Institute of Autoimmune Disease. There is no NIH funding National Institute of Autoimmune Disease and Autoimmune Disease Centers where all these autoimmune diseases are located, brought together under one umbrella in which there is a division or department of cellular therapy that would include hematopoietic stem cell transplant as well as other types of cellular therapies that are being developed. Instead, they're all orphaned off into these different departments because that's the way that medicine had developed and they had already established their fiefdoms. And so that's one of the problems. You could see me uh, at Scripps. But I myself, you know, I could never handle the type of volume no. people. This could really help. So I want other centers to do this. But it has to be done right with optimal regimen and patient selection. That's why I did the medical textbook. And that's why I also have a website, astemcelljourney.com, mm-hmm. all one word, astemcelljourney.com, because the key is getting people to know. I've worked on this for 35 years. And I've given talks around the world and done randomized trials, published in the major medical journals, and yet... I'm always amazed at the, either the complete misunderstanding of what this is and who it applies to, or the fact that people aren't aware of it at all, or they're not told about it. One of the other reasons is called financial toxicity. And if you look at these drugs that are available to treat MS, there's now about 15 of them. They're all about $100,000 a year or more every year. Well, that's a crazy amount of money, and most people have insurance to pay for it, although they are, may have some deductibles and things, but still, so your insurance company, society, or if you're on Medicare, what, is paying for it. Society's paying for it. If it's an insurance company, it's all the people contributing to the insurance company that are paying for it. These are really expensive drugs. That you, but this transplant's a one-time thing, and you're done, and the procedure itself is $100,000, so it pays for itself in one year. But when we have... 78% remission by five years, you're talking about three quarters of, if you do 100 people, 75 people for four years of saving $100,000 each. Every year, that's $400,000. And now that I'm seeing people out 20 years in remission, this is a tremendous savings for our society. And part of how this financial toxicity comes about is that doctors are not trained in the cost of health care. Well, let's go into, if you have a neurologist listening to this, how do they pick which uh, patients are appropriate for it, besides just if they're in relapsing, remitting phase still? And where do they find resources to send the patients to? Because like you said, you can't treat them all. So are there other um, centers developing this? Have you had any success implementing education series where you can share this for others? How do neurologists who actually see the benefit of it get their patients to this kind of treatment? What I found is younger neurologists are tending to be much more enthusiastic about this than the older uh, neurologists. So I can see the patients. You know, there's a process where you have to make sure it's the right uh, patient. And really what we're looking for is relapsing-emitting MS that's having frequent attacks despite the standard drugs out there. So if they're just on interference copaxone, which are relatively weak disease-modifying therapies, we want two attacks within the last year. If they're on any of the other drugs, which are stronger drugs, and on one of those drugs they have an attack, and a confirmed attack within the last year, they would be a candidate. Now, generally, we won't take somebody that's newly diagnosed, but if at the time of presentation you have a lot of enhancing or a lot of lesions in your brain or spinal cord, and that sometimes happens. What neurologists
oncologists will do currently is then they'll put them on these aggressive DMT. I think that type of patient upon presentation would do good with a transplant too. So that's the group. We're, we're not looking for relatively stable MS that's controlled with the current drugs or that is relatively few attacks or few lesions when it starts. But if it starts explosive and they want to go to these aggressive drugs, I think they can go to transplant. Or if they're on these drugs and they're breaking through with attacks but still relapse from remitting, then they can refer to transplant. That's the right patient okay. to treat. And then how do they find your resources? Through a stemcelljourney.com or is there another clinical avenue that a neurologist or a hematologist might actually want to reach out through like the center that you work with? Any good center, any good university center, meaning they're doing standard care for cancer, would have a protocol that they follow, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because it's just the proper way. It's kind of a standard of care pathway for every, the whole team to follow. So the MS trial is listed on clinicaltrials.gov. There is another uh, trial in America, but they use myeloblative regimens, which I don't use because I think they're too aggressive and have more toxicity. That's also listed on clinicaltrials.gov for patients to go to. So if they go to clinicaltrials.gov for government you, and type in the multiple sclerosis stem cell transplant, you'll see this trial, non-myeloblative, that I'm performing. You'll also see up the uh, myeloblative trial. But you can find uh, these trials and centers that do it on clinicaltrials.gov. Most centers around the world outside of America now use my regimen and convert a chronic autoimmune disease into a one-time reversible illness with very long-term remissions. If a doctor has a patient with scleroderma, what types of things would they look for to see if their patient's appropriate for this hematopoietic stem cell transplant and immune conditioning treatment? So basically, yeah, basically the... The criteria I'd look for just offhand for scleroderma are a skin score, modified Raman skin score greater than 14. That's a standard test to check how tight the skin is, and most uh, rheumatologists do that. And the other is any lung involvement. So those are the two basic criteria. They, if the skin score is less than 14 but they have lung involvement, they would be a candidate. If the skin score is over 14 with, you know, any internal organ involvement of any type, multiple internal organs are involved in this disease, believe me, um, then they'd be a candidate to, for this procedure. And what about Crohn's again, disease? Procedure, yeah, so Crohn's disease, the patient we took and talked about here, it's really a salvage therapy where they've failed multiple drugs and, um, you know, it's more than luminal disease. So all drug trials in Crohn's took patients with luminal-only disease, whereas for transplant, we take people with fistulizing, uh, stricturing disease uh, that is, it extends beyond the lumen itself. They've often been heavily pretreated, and we've used it as a salvage for that. With uh, in the few patients we've done, you know, outstanding long-term remissions that are confirmed by endoscopy. As a matter of fact, one of the patients in the book that I talked about is being just over 10 years out. You know, she just recontacted me. She'd gone to her local gastroenterologist, and they scoped her again you know, beyond 12 years and found absolutely no evidence of Crohn's. They did it, even though she completely asymptomatic, I think in part because they're amazed that this yeah. refractory from an age of 12 until 20 disease has absolutely been absent for the last 12 years. And not just clinically, but histologically, there's nothing there. It's very encouraging to see that not only when you're looking at it through the scope, don't you see it, but on biopsy, it's not there either. And symptomatically, it's resolved. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. 
So it sounds like for most of the diseases, the the criteria is more like a moderate uh, severity. So if they're well managed with low level drugs, then they're likely not the best candidate because the risk to benefit profile does, just doesn't quite balance out. And if they've had it for too long and they're too involved, then they might not get the complete reversal of the symptoms that they've had. Is that fair? Um, As like a whole? Yeah, it's a little broad, but as a broad brush, it's fairly accurate because it depends on each disease. But you're right. It's the selection of patients you want. In terms of risk-benefit, you don't want to take disease that's relatively benign. But if you wait too long, like in MS, and it becomes neurodegenerative, it's too late for any immune-based therapy, including stem cell transplant. And so, you know, getting the proper patient selection and the proper regimen is very much disease-specific. And it really is developed kind of out of sitting at the bedside of each patient as, as well as kind of a gut instinct of where to go next when you're analyzing that data. So anybody who is listening who wants to dive further into how Dr. Burt's transplant protocols can help folks with multiple sclerosis, scleroderma, autoimmune diseases, including optic neuritis and a few others, please look into his book, Everyday Miracles. He's been so generous with his time here today. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Burt. Oh, thank you. And maybe someday we can talk about the new thing I'm working on, which are IPS, induced pluripotent stem cells for aging and degenerative disorders. Another chronic, the big new chronic diseases for which all we do is supportive care and you just get worse. All these problems of aging and our IPS technology, which we have seven patents in now, really works. It works in animal models. So I'm really focused to try to bring that forward into clinical trials. That's going to be a whole other story, perhaps someday another book. Oh, my gosh. I want to talk about that right now. (laughs) (laughs) Part three? No. (laughs) No, if if I'm right, and it's worked in the animals, what we we have is a uh, is a engineered IPS, or you, re, you revert to an adult cell back to the state of an embryonic stem cell through genetic reprogramming. That's called an IPS cell, but then we further modify it so and so that once it's injected, um, you know, it actually just dies. So then, how would it work? Well, the, we want it to die. We don't want it to grow. We don't want it to cause problems because it can do that. But in the process of dying, it releases all these factors which regenerate a damaged tissue that is in the area or even uh, distant from that area, depending on how we inject it. And what we found it does is really through epigenetic reprogramming. And so, you know, aging used to be thought of that as you got older, you got mutations and oxidative damage and things that's reversible. But in fact... There's an aging clock called the Horowitz clock. It has to do with with a lot with the histones, the chromatin structure uh, that can be modified. And in fact, as you get older, our bodies sag. I mean, we just gravity's you know, relentless. Go, yeah, plastic surgeons go in to try to make you look younger to tighten up that subcutaneous tissue. But everything's kind of sagging, and the chromatin that's wrapped around the genes also is sagging. And this process can reset that, tighten it up, and it can, you know, we can make animals uh, more intelligent. Uh, We can make them younger in terms of their organ function and in acute trauma or 
degenerative processes, we can repair that in animals. And so we want to move that forward. I'm, I really want to bring that forward. Now, just because we can do it in animals, I have to give the caveat, we have to show that we can do this in people before we say it's going to work in people. But 35 years ago, when I was doing these stem cell transplants in animal models for MS, such as AE, it worked, and that eventually brought to these clinical trials. So, you know, I'm kind of back where I was 35 years ago, but I'm very excited about how this can can fundamentally change a lot of these uh, chronic degenerative and aging processes that are going on. You're and chronically actually, curious. <laughs> I love it. Well, That's what leads I, to these revolutions. Yes, I'm staying young at, in my mind. Yeah. So does this have to do with senescent cells specifically, or is it more global than that? Oh, it's far more global. Yeah. Okay. And it's through stem cell transplant. Of Is it hematopoietic yeah. stem cells? And, oh, no, no. These are IPS. So these are, so what we'll do is take like a neonatal foreskin. Those are the youngest cells we can get where there's no ethical question. Mm. Any younger, you'd have to go to a fetus. That raises ethical questions. So we can take fetal foreskin and expand and grow up those fibroblasts to billions and billions and billions, and then we can take a vial from that. You know, we'll just store down the rest so we have a master cell bank of these fibroblasts. And, of course, they're all checked for any type of infection and so forth, but uh, to make sure there's nothing there. And then we would um, genetically reprogram them to the embryonic state. And the cells transition back. You can watch them morphologically change in the petri dish back to an embryonic stem cell with all that potential regenerative power of an embryonic stem cell, which we all had at one time in our life, but it's it's right after fertilization when that occurs. But by the time the blastocyst implants into the placenta, into the uterine wall, those embryonic stem cells are long gone. They've already well, at the time of implantation, they're just there, and then they disappear. Uh, they differentiate into mesoderm, ectoderm, and endoderm, you know, that develops in, like, endoderm into the gut and ectoderm into brain and skin and so forth. And then they, they further differentiate, and we've long lost that true uh, pluripotent regenerative capacity of one type of stem cell that can make any organ in your body. It's long gone well before we're ever born. They're never in our body again, but they can be reprogram back to that state and then can be used. And the cool thing about the way we've done it, and it's based on our patents, is that we have a universal stem cell independent of HLA that can repair any organ system. It's worked in animals. We want to get it to the level of uh, patients. To Hopefully that'll be the case as well. Do you see that working for people who have gone through significant hormonal changes like postmenopausal women? who no longer have as much estrogen for their estrogen receptors and their tendons and, and whatnot? Well, you know, where I would start this is in things such as uh, spinal cord trauma or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or uh, degenerative joint diseases in old people, you know, that, you know, that you're 80 or 90 years old, your hip is terrible, you have chronic pain, and the risk of surgery has a very high mortality to it. Uh, you know, the possibility of generally repairing those hips simply by injection of these cells. There's nothing else done, no chemotherapy or anything like that. Trauma, uh, uh, down the line we'll be looking at putting grants Department of Defense for trauma. Mm. That would be a, a, you know, we were actually able to take these cells, lyophilize them, turn them into a white powder, put them in a little sealed 
uh, vial, and when you need them, you just open the vial at uh, normal saline, or which is really salt water. It uh, dissolves the cell. Uh, you suck them up, and you inject them as needed, and they work. So a medic could actually carry them on their in their uh, medical kit and just pull them out and inject them right at the scene of, of trauma to already start the process accelerating. We've shown that we can, uh, you know, increase the time of repair of wounds by 30 to 50 percent by just one treatment. Holy with moly. So, uh, you know, scleroderma patients get these horrible digital ulcers and, you know, one way would, you know, we could use it to treat those digital ulcers. You could use it to treat non-healing decubiti. Basically, any type of traumatic or aging degenerative process is where you could consider using this. Now, you know, I'm sure there are people that would want to use it for things like, you know, making hair or cosmetic reasons or, uh, you know, resetting hormonal imbalance and stuff. But where we would be focusing initially is on these more serious uh, uh, disorders. And, of course, that also then gives you the opportunity to establish safety in terms of risk-benefit in the more serious Mm -hmm. conditions where that risk-benefit ratio is more in favor of treatment, uh, you know, before taking it to something that may be not considered as severe. Yeah. I've seen some studies going on about regenerating ACL tissue, using stem cells, but I think those are autologous, so from that patient's own body versus from a, a fetal stem cell. That may well be mesenchymal, and people do use mesenchymal uh, cells for that purpose, but uh, there are different types of stem cells that have been my focus. It was hematopoietic for immune reset for autoimmune diseases, and now these IPS cells for generating uh, and repairing aging and or traumatic injury. What does IPF stand for again? Induced pluripotent stem cells. Okay. Wow, that is some really exciting work. Yeah. Is there any other resources that we can find in the future for this, specifically for you? Are you going to continue to document about this particular part of your research on a stem cell journey, or is that so specific my, to the hematopoietic? My main, my main focus is switching to IPS, but transplant for autoimmune disease was my first child, and I want to make sure it goes through its teenage years in mm-hmm. the right direction. But basically, you know, that'll be about 25% of my time. My main focus will be on developing getting these IPS to the bedside. Okay, very good. Before we completely put the conversation to bed, are there other autoimmune disorders that we didn't bring up that you could see being successfully treated with hematopoietic stem cell transplant and immune conditioning? So we've had success with lupus, had two papers in JAMA with lupus, it, the the regimen does need to be tweaked a little bit. Whether that'll happen or not, it'll depend. If the, I work closely with Europeans, and if they want to continue on, I, a, I would need some younger person to take that. I would be glad to help write the regimen with the Europeans, but it can definitely work. It's just that with lupus at five years, we had 50% relapse, and we felt we could do better, mm. but we took very severe lupus. And I think this new regimen we'd want to use would work even better, but I need, you know, more hands involved to do that. Uh, We've did it in type 1 diabetes, getting people off of insulin, but the key is you have to do it very early, within six weeks of onset of type 1 diabetes, and we limit it to adults that is over age 18, because once you apply a protocol to children, that's a whole other Mm. ethical concern that, you know, in terms of risk benefit, we just didn't want to 
go in that direction. But we had good results. We have two publications in JAMA on that. That needs to be finessed a little bit more. I have ideas how to do that, but I myself won't. don't personally have the time to do it, but I'm glad to, to share what we've done and help other people to do it. Uh, originally, when I wrote that protocol, we did it at the University of Sao Paulo, and they're still working in that direction with diabetes. And also have done this in Stifferson syndrome. Again, the, we published that in neurology about two years ago. And, um, you know, it was kind of a mixed result. But if you get the selection right, the result can be very encouraging. So, you know, this can go across the board. There, you know, probably... I can name 80 different autoimmune diseases in the book, in a figure, I, or in a table, I list 76 different autoimmune diseases across pretty much every department, whether it's ophthalmology, endocrinology, you know, dermatology, gastroenterology, neurology, whatever, that of all these different autoimmune diseases. So it could be applied to virtually all or most of them, but you have to tweak the regimen for each one. But, uh, you know, that will require... I think uh, getting other people engaged in this to do that. Of course, yeah, a lot of collaboration needed. And like you said, you only have so much time. Do you see right. any possibility in treating some long-term viral infections with some of these protocols? Uh-huh. Well, not with hematopoietic stem cell transplant. Now, with our IPS therapy, that has crossed my mind, but that's a whole other area. Yeah. I need to focus right now on trying to see if we can repair some traumatic and degenerative diseases. Yeah, pick pick a pick a path but and no, follow I think it the, through. The field of cellular therapy, you know, it's I think it's on the verge of opening up to having a much bigger impact on patients and improving quality of life and our medical care system. But there's still always a lot of hurdles in in getting this done. Yeah. Any closing remarks that you'd like to share before we close up? No, I think that last little bit is, should uh, make it be an appetizer for people. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> of what, of what uh, I'm working on that I hope to bring uh, to light in the future. Things to come. Uh, that is beyond just laboratory work. Yeah. New everyday miracles uh, promised yeah. by Dr. Burt in the future. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you again for having me. Of course. Have a lovely evening. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. My favorite band was playing an Otis Redding song When they sang the chorus Everybody sang along Dan Margarita Swaying side by side I heard they were divorcing But I guess they let it slide And I wish they had some money With which to buy around I wish I cashed my paycheck Before I came to town But I reached into my pocket Found three twenties and a ten It feels so good 